Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Hey everybody, I'm Jeff, one of the pastors at Salt Church. Welcome, particularly if you've never been here before. Great to have you with us. What do you do when you doubt God? I think it's common for most Christians to doubt God about something at some point in their lives. Uh, If you've never doubted God before, please come and see me afterwards because I would love to hear your secret. I think most Christians doubt God at some time about something. But it is a good thing if we don't doubt, isn't it? Wouldn't it be a great thing if our default reaction was to trust God? And sometimes that is what happens. Uh, Often that comes from helpfully accepting that God is trustworthy Uh, But sometimes we have this passive acceptance of God. We haven't really felt and wrestled with the weight of what God says or what God does. And so it's like we've got a foot in two camps. We're trusting God, but we also make a backup plan just in case God doesn't come through. Uh, We don't trust God enough to bring him our deepest things, our deepest fears and worries and doubts and anxieties. But God can handle everything we bring to him. God can handle everything we bring to him. And there is a big thing today in the book of Deuteronomy that we're going to see. Uh, We're in, as Andrew said, we're in Deuteronomy. It's like this one giant sermon from Moses to the, the ancient Israelites as they stand on the edge of the land God promised to give them. And the Moses who gives this speech to them is about to die. So these are the last words of a man who is desperate to make sure God's people enter the land and get to enjoy it because they trust God enough to go in. And we saw last week he starts this sermon with a history lesson. We saw this last week. You'll check out this map. Uh, hopefully you can see that. <clears throat> now, the history of ancient Israel is that they come from slavery in Egypt, point number one there, They come down, they cross the Red Sea, they go down to Mount Sinai where God makes his covenant with them, gives them the law. Then they work their way up to the edge of the promised land, which is that shaded bit up near number five. Uh, They send some spies in to spy out the land. And then God's people refuse to trust God and they fail to trust God and so they don't go into the land. So for 38 years they wander in circles in the desert Uh, where there's a little feeder. And then finally, they come into the promised land. And we are at point number 13 right now. And Moses is describing what happened at point 11 when they attacked the nation of Heshbon, uh, the Amorites. So ancient Israel is here. They're on the edge of the promised land. But they were here 40 years ago. And now the next generation is there again. And Moses warns them, don't fail to trust God like your parents did. That's what we saw last week. Now he's reminding them of a battle that they recently won. And the reason for the battle is that God's promised land is not vacant. People live there, so they need to remove them. And I don't know if you heard it as Anne just read. We just heard how God's people annihilated the men and women and children who lived there, all of them, There were no survivors, just as God told them to. That's the part of the Bible that we're exploring today. It's about holy war, and it's brutal, and it's confronting, and it's so heavy. And it's the very thing that causes many people to reject God. How could a good, loving God command the death of countless people? The fact that God commands something that seems so evil 
is why some of my friends who aren't Christians, why they want nothing to do with the God of the Bible. As Christians, though, we are on about the God of the Bible. So what do we do? I think Christians tend to respond in kind of three ways. And then there's kind of three options of how we could respond. We could try and ignore this. That's an option. We could just bury our head in our favorite Bible verses and pretend that this isn't here. Or second thing, we could suggest that the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament and just stick with the New Testament God who seems less angry and more loving. Of course, though, the New Testament has just as many moments of judgment as the Old Testament, and the Old Testament has just as many examples of love as the New Testament. And there's actually only one God, one perfect, unchanging God. Or the third thing we can do is get our preconceptions challenged by the Bible. We can realize that we struggle with this part of the Bible because we don't know God well. If we knew God better, this would make sense. And that's my plan. I'm going to show us six things we learn about God here and from the rest of the Bible. And if we lose one of these six, you'll have an incomplete understanding of what's going on here and what God tells us about holy war. But if you get them all together, you'll understand what God's doing here. It is heavy though, so I'm going to pray and ask God to guide us through this. Let's pray. Father God, you tell us that you want us to love you with our hearts and our minds and our soul and our strength. Please help us to do that today. Help us particularly to love you with our minds as we wrestle with these ideas about who you are. Maybe some things some of us have never heard before or never wrestled with. Please guide us into the truth. Please help us to respond to you the way that we ought to. Amen. The first thing you need to know about God here is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is the creator. We are just creatures. God rules the universe. We just live in it. God is the potter. We are the clay. God is God. We are not. Uh, Here's how the Bible puts it in a few places. Here's what Isaiah 45 says. He says, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Or here's Romans 9.20. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? We actually need immense humility when we come to a question like this. God is not in a war crimes court sitting in the dock as we fire questions at him. Who are we to ask any question of God? We need to be humble before God. And the first thing to see to make sense of this is that God can do whatever he wants in his world because it's his world. And God decided he was going to give ancient Israel this promised land. You see that in verse 24. Have a look with me. Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 24. Here's what God says to Moses and the people. He says, set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. People live there, but that land is God's to give. God's to give away because God owns that land. You get the same thing in verse 19. Have a look, verse 19. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war. For I will not give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. The reason that we live here. The reason people live anywhere is because God has put us there. 
God is sovereign over absolutely everything that happens in his world. And he wanted ancient Israel in the promised land and the Amorites out of it. And God has the right to do that. But the way he does it is very confronting though. Which brings us to the second thing. It's that God is using what he hates in his plans. God hates human violence. How we treat other people really matters to God. But very quickly in the story of the Bible, you see people turn away from God and turn to violently oppose each other. Uh, The very first child ever born in the world is Cain, who murders his brother out of petty jealousy. He has a great-grandson called Lamech, and Lamech writes a song to his two wives, and he says, check it out, I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. He writes this ballad to celebrate his violence. He's proud of it. God hates human violence, though. But God uses things he hates to achieve his plans. He works through flawed people, evil human acts, the malicious schemes of Satan. He uses everything that happens to achieve his plans. And the best example of this is Jesus at the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He died on the cross because Judas betrayed him and because Satan was warring against him and because the religious and the political leaders conspired against Jesus to murder him out of their petty jealousy and the threat that he posed to their power. And all of that happened because it was God's will to use that in his plan. Uh, The apostles are praying once and here's what they say in Acts 4. They're reflecting on what happened at the cross and they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God uses everything that happens in his plans, even things that he hates, God uses in his plans. And at this point, God is using ancient Israel as the agent or the tool that will bring his justice on the Amorites. Sometimes God uses human violence in his purposes, even though he hates human violence. Sometimes God uses war in his purposes, even though he hates that. Now, is that true of every war? Uh, did world war, was World War I God's judgment on evil people? Is the war in Ukraine at the moment God's judgment on evil people? We're not told. Uh, We're not told in the Bible. So it's pretty unhelpful to speculate because we won't actually find an answer to that question. But we are told here in Deuteronomy. We're told in Deuteronomy that ancient Israel is the means God uses to judge the evil of the people in the promised land. Israel is the agent or the tool God used to bring justice on these people in the promised land. And it is pretty horrific what happens. There are a few things, though, that reduce the horror of what God commands them to do. Uh, The first thing, I think, is that this is unprovoked. So you see this in verse 26. Have a look with me, verse 26. This is Moses talking. He says, From the desert of Kedemoth, I sent messengers to Sihon, king of Heshbon, offering peace and saying, Let us pass through your country. We will stay on the main road. We will not turn aside to the right or to the left. Sell us food to eat and water to drink for their price in silver. Only let us pass through on foot, 
as the descendants of Esau who lived in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for us, until we crossed the Jordan into the land the Lord our God is giving us. But Sihon king of Heshbon refused to let us pass through. So they, they don't come in guns blazing. They start off looking for a peace treaty. They try and set up a peace treaty with them. They've just made one with Esau's descendants and with the Moabites. So they make the same offer. But Sihon rejects it and he refuses to listen to that and Sihon attacks them. There's one thing I think that changes a little bit. It's an unprovoked attack. The second thing is that this is a limited group of people that they do this to. Uh, Leave a piece of paper there or a finger there. Come over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Flick with me, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here's what God says, or Moses says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy." Again, it's, it's pretty brutal, but notice in there, there's seven nations who are listed. It's only these seven nations who live in the promised land. These are the only people that they're told to, uh, to attack and destroy. It's a lot of people, but it's not an unlimited number of people. They, they don't get a free pass to conquer whoever they want, just the people in the promised land. I think another thing that changes this a little bit for us is, is to see how often we forget how violent the world is in our sheltered little bubble. Uh, who is not shocked and, and just saddened and horrified by the war in the Ukraine at the moment? It is awful and tragic what's happened over there, and we need to keep on praying for God to bring peace. But do you want to know how many conflicts there are in the world at the moment? How many armed conflicts there are in the moment? There are 57 at the moment. You'll see it on the map. Here's all the places in the world where there are armed conflicts. Um, I'll give you the numbers from the bottom to the top. The, the skirmishes and clashes are those where up to 100 people die per year. There are 14 of those at the moment. Then there's the minor conflicts where up to 1,000 deaths have happened in a year. There are 20 of those at the moment. Then there are wars where one to 10,000 people have died in a year. There are 17 of those at the moment. And then there are major wars where up to 10,000 10, plus people have died in a current or past calendar year. There are six of those at the moment, six places where what's happening in the Ukraine is happening around the world. Ancient Israel lived in the world that we still live in, that many people still live in, a world of violence, a world of unprovoked attacks. I think the shock of this passage is partly because we forget the world that we live in. We forget the peace we have in Australia, the peace that came by war, actually. But we forget the peace in Australia that we have. It's come by God's grace to us. But I think the thing that most reduces the horror of this is that these people deserve what they receive, which is the third thing we need to know about God, that God is judge. Uh, Israel are destroyed as God's judgment on their evil. And God tells us a couple of places in the Bible, God tells us about the nations who live in the promised land. And he tells us that they are arrogant and brutal. They're idolaters. They worship demons. They're sexually immoral. They practice incest. And then he tells us this about them. 
He says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. A parent's love for their child is hardwired in. How evil and corrupt is this, this nation of people who reject that, callously reject their own children and sacrifice them. This is not an innocent nation of people. This, this is not just Adolf Hitler. This is a nation of Adolf Hitlers. This is actually worse than Adolf Hitler. The, the Nazis killed, their, killed other people's children. They're killing their own children as a sacrifice to their gods. And God is judge. Israel bring God's judgment on these people for their wickedness, their idolatry, their violence, their cruelty, their evil. This is the point that just keeps coming up in Deuteronomy. Uh, Come over to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Have a look at this one. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Verse 4. Chapter 9, verse 4. says, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. It's because of their wickedness. Again and again, Deuteronomy tells us this. And God uses ancient Israel to judge their evil. The question is, does God have the right and the responsibility to judge evil in our world? Does God have the right and the responsibility to judge evil in our world? I think you want to say, yes, of course he does. That is God's right and responsibility. Um, I'm sure you know, in 1994 in Rwanda, the genocide happened. And 800,000 people were killed in 100 days. And a man named Gary Hagan led the UN investigation into it. And he wrote a book about his experiences. And in this book, he's reflecting on the the popular view of God, the idea that God just loves everyone. He'll never judge anyone. He just accepts everyone really gladly. And he's reflecting on that idea. And he's trying to fit that with his experiences and what he's seen. And he comes to the point where he actually appreciates the fact that God judges. Uh, Here's what he says. It's pretty heavy. He says, Standing with my boots deep in the reeking mud of a Rwandan mass grave, where thousands of innocent people have been horribly slaughtered, I have no words, no meaning, no life, no hope, if there is not a God of history and time who is absolutely furious absolutely burning with anger towards those who took it in their own hands to commit such acts. Do you see what he's saying? God loves us enough to judge. It is a good thing that God judges. If God doesn't judge, he's not good. He's not loving. God loves us enough to bring justice into a world that is racked by injustice. And that is a good thing because it means that how we treat each other matters to God. 
It means that how I treat you and how you treat me and how Hitler treated the Jews and how Putin is treating the Ukraine, all of that matters to God, which is wonderful news, isn't it? The God who is sovereign over this world is a good and fair ruler of this world. God has a responsibility to judge his world and he does it. He did it at this time in history in Deuteronomy and he will do it for everyone. There is a day of judgment coming when everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God, the God who knows absolutely everything about you. And you and I will be called to give an account to that God for the life that we've lived. And that leads to the next crucial fact about God. It's that God is patient. Lest we think that God is quick to judge and destroy or that God is eager to harm, we need to see that God is slow to anger. God is patient. God doesn't want anyone to perish but everyone to be saved. And you see his patience with the people who live in the promised land because God promised this land to Abraham, a guy named Abraham. He promised this very plot of land, but he said to him, you're not actually going to live in it and your children are not going to live in it. It's actually going to be 400 years before your family live in this land. Here's what he says in Genesis 15. Then the Lord said to him, to Abraham, He said, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Why does it take just so long for ancient Israel to get into the promised land? It's because God is being patient with the Amorites. He lets their judgment pile up to give them more time, more opportunities to repent. He gives them 400 years. Then Israel gets at the edge of the promised land and they rebel against God and he gives them 40 more years. God is outrageously patient with them. God is outrageously patient with us. When you see just horrific glaring evil in the world, what do we do? I think we often ask, what are you doing about this, God? Why are you allowing this? Why aren't you stopping this? But to deal with the injustice in the world, what does God have to do? He must judge and destroy all of us. Because who is the human who has never sinned? If God was completely just, he must judge and destroy all of us. The reason God doesn't wipe out all evil right now is because God is patient. Uh, 2 Peter 3 tells us this. Have a look at this one. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. God gives everyone a chance to repent lest they be judged as they deserve by God. God is giving you the chance to repent lest you be judged as you deserve. God loves victims and God loves perpetrators. And he gave the Amorites 400 years, a nation more evil and more corrupt than the Nazis. And God says to them, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet, until finally justice comes. Do I think the shock is not that God brings justice. I think the shock is that God waited so long to bring justice, so much longer than any of us would have waited. Which leads to the fifth thing about God, that God is merciful. He waits so long because he's merciful. And if those people had have turned to God, they would have been forgiven and saved, 
just like ancient Israel were forgiven and saved by God. I reckon I, I fall into this trap of thinking that God operates between just and unjust. And I look at his decisions and what he does to try and work out if it meets my standard of justice. But that's not how God works. God is always just. God operates between just and merciful. Either God takes the justice on himself to be merciful or he gives people what is right. But sometimes God takes the justice on himself so he can show mercy. That's how God works. A good, loving God commands the death of countless people because that's what justice demands. A good, loving God sends his enemies to an eternity in hell because that's what justice demands. And a good, loving God shows mercy to anyone who comes to him. Uh, Let me show you some beautiful verses, some of the most beautiful in the Bible. These come from the Old Testament, mind you. God says, Ezekiel 33, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Or Micah 7, who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives transgression. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Delight to show mercy. I think for us, the the place that we see God's mercy clearest is at the cross. When Jesus took the punishment we deserved. Uh, Because what is it that Jesus cries out on the cross? Do you remember what Jesus says? On the cross, he says, My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? That's where our judgment fell for those of us who trust in Jesus, for anyone who will trust in Jesus. Our judgment fell on Jesus when he was forsaken by God, when God crushed his son instead of crushing us. God is not a cruel and vindictive judge. God is a savior. He longs to save people. He delights in saving people. He goes out of his way and bends over backwards to save people. And the question is, when you stand before the judgment seat of the God who knows everything about you, will you stand there forgiven or unforgiven? Because you refuse the gift of mercy that Jesus offers. Will you call out to the God who is merciful before his patience runs out? If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you must not harden your heart to God any longer. You must not shut God out any longer. And if you're a Christian, let's rejoice in who our God is. I think sometimes we have this this really small boxed view of who God is. That's not who God is. God is massive. There's no limits to God. Even using the word big is not the right word for God. He has no limit. He's endless. He's eternal. He's infinite. And he is so good and just and merciful and patient. We need to know more about our God and love our God. Which brings us to the last thing. Is that God is calling us Christians to holy war, sort of. (laughs) What do I mean by that? Just kind of wrapping this whole topic up. What do I mean by that? Well, it's not hard to find examples of people who have committed horrific violence in the name of God. That is not hard to do. It is very easy to find that, sadly. 
Uh, when Christians take up a sword or a club or a gun to bring justice, to bring God's justice, or to bring God's kingdom, they actually have completely misunderstood a whole bunch of things about God. And when Christians do that, when Christians use violence to bring the justice of God, we've completely misunderstood a whole bunch of things. One of them is that we've misunderstood the character of the God we follow, a God who hates human violence. Another thing is that we've misunderstood the time that we live in, a different time to the time that ancient Israel lived in. We live in the time of God's patience and God's mercy. Uh, in the New Testament, it's called the day of salvation. There is a day of judgment coming, but it's not here yet. Now is the time of God's patient mercy. And on that day of judgment, God is the one who will judge, not us. We are not the means that God uses to bring justice to the world like ancient Israel was for those seven nations. Now is the day of salvation. But I think most of all, it misunderstands the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Listen to Jesus' words when he's before Pontius Pilate on trial. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Who is saying about his kingdom? Jesus' kingdom is spiritual. Jesus' kingdom rules in people's hearts and people's lives. I heard this illustration once. It's a little bit like the kingdom of Apple. Where does you know, Apple, phones, computers, where is the kingdom of Apple? Where would you say is the place where Apple reigns? Well, you might say the headquarters in Silicon Valley, but I think actually it's more accurate to go anyone who owns an, an Apple product, anyone who really loves their Apple product, that is a place where the kingdom of Apple reigns. Uh, and there's a lot of things about that kingdom. It's a, uh, I think it's similar. God's kingdom is the place where God reigns in people's hearts, where God has called people from out of darkness into his kingdom. That's what it means. Jesus' kingdom is not a country. It's not a political party. It's not the modern state of Israel. It's not something you could bring about by force and by violence. So using violence in the name of God completely misunderstands the nature of the kingdom that you're part of. But yet, Christians are in a holy war, just not how you think. So come over to one last passage, Ephesians chapter 6, the other passage that Andrew read for us, Ephesians chapter 6. Have a listen to what it says, verse 10, Ephesians 6 verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, our, our battle, our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. And then he goes and he lists all the things, all the armor of God that we use to stand, truth and righteousness and salvation and peace and faith. And, and have a look in verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, 
And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. There is a war that Christians are engaged in. It's an invisible spiritual war. It's an invisible spiritual war that we take part in as we resist the devil and the devil's schemes and as we choose to trust God instead. It's an invisible spiritual war we take part in as we call other people to join us in Jesus' kingdom. And the weapons that we fight with are not bombs or fists, but the armor of God and prayer and the sword of the spirit, which is the words of God. And the way that we fight for God against evil in our world is to stand firm. Do you notice that? It's like three or four times in there. It says stand. Do all this so that you can stand in this battle. God is the one who wins this war. He's already won it at the cross and we'll see the final outcome when Jesus returns. Our job is to stand firm against sin in our own lives. That's how we participate in this battle. And our job is to support each other, to pray for each other. And our job is to pray for and share the word of God to urge people to come into God's kingdom while they still have time. That's our holy war. And let me end with one way this week, one suggestion of a way this week you could take your part in this holy war if you're a Christian. Uh, You can share the things that you've heard tonight with someone who doesn't know God. That's one way you can take your place in this holy war. Let me give you an idea I heard recently. Uh, The idea is this. Tomorrow, when you go to work or whatever it is you do tomorrow, and someone asks you, how was your weekend? Here's what you could say. Actually, it was really hard. Because at church yesterday, I heard about how God judges people, and I saw that it's a good thing God cares about what happens in his world, but it was really heavy, and it's gotten me thinking. And what are the chances that that will lead to a conversation that goes beyond the weather and which sporting team beat that other sporting team? What are the chances that actually leads to a pretty deep conversation? Now, here's my reaction when I heard this idea. I thought, that is a great idea that I will never do. (laughs) Maybe you feel the same way. And I was trying to think, why is that? Why is it that that was my reaction? And I thought, "I I think it's because I assumed the worst outcome. I'm married to Fiona, a lady named Fiona, and I assume the worst will happen. So when Fiona is 10 minutes late, later home than I expect her to be, I don't make the reasonable assumption that she's gone to get petrol or she's stopped off to get some milk. I assume car crash, explosions, flames, everybody's dead. I assume the worst. I think we do that as people. I think we assume the worst thing will happen. But I can guarantee most people are more willing to chat than we give them credit for. Uh, so have a go at this. At the very least, try this simply because the stakes are so high. Hell and heaven are real. God is sovereign, the sovereign judge, and God is patient, but his patience will run out. And God longs to show mercy. And sadly, I find that I am less willing to offer people mercy than God is to give it. Why don't we pray? Father God, thank you so much for what we've seen. Thank you that you can stand up to our doubts and our worries and our fears and our anxieties. You can stand up to everything. 
Thank you, Lord, for what we've seen about you in your word. Uh, We pray that we would get to know you better. We pray that we would trust you. We pray that even with the really hard and confronting parts of your word, the hard things that you call us to do, help us to learn to trust you and understand what you're doing. We pray that you would show mercy on all of us, that you would help us to cling to you until the very end, to that day of judgment where we can stand there forgiven because Jesus took our place. And we pray for our friends and family, maybe the people that we see and speak with tomorrow even. Help us, Lord, to have courage knowing the costs, knowing the stakes are so high, and knowing that you are such a patient and merciful God. Amen.